Max, if you'd like to come up for kids' time, and anybody who feels like a kid is welcome to come up as well, because we're going to have a little action for the children's sermon today, actually. This is, as you can tell, Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, we have the heavy, festive chasuble that we're wearing. Neil has lit the seven-branch candelabra. It's a big, big Sunday. And Neil, you can come too. Um, so what we do on Transfiguration Sunday is bury the Alleluia. I think we've done this here at Christ Church before, because during Lent, which starts on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday, during Lent, we don't say Alleluia. Now, it's not wrong if we do, if we slip up and someone says, Alleluia, praise the Lord. They don't get fired. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just our tradition during Lent, because it's kind of a sober time. It's not a sad time, but it's a sober time that we don't say things like Alleluia. It's not festive. So, Ben is going to help. In addition to being deacon, he is camera and sound man today because we're going to try to take down the Alleluia banner and we're going to try to bury it in the baptismal font. And on Easter Sunday, we'll bring the Alleluia back again. Okay? So, um, does that sound good, gals? All right, thank you. What we want to do... Now, do be careful on some steps. Uh, yes. <laughs> if you guys want to stand down on the bottom, and I'll sort of unhook the Alleluia. And if one of you, there you go, one of you carry on one side, and the other carry the other, and we'll go back to the back of the You're doing a great job. You can actually stand up and turn around if you want to. <laughs> it's all good. Now here's the tricky part because Pastor Jim has to take the top of the baptismal font out. And it's heavy. Watch your fingers. And it's kind of heavy, yes, watch your fingers. And if you guys kind of want to roll it gently up. Kelly and Francis, did you see the Alleluia banner? Yeah, we did. Okay, good. Well, you're doing a great job. Good, thank you. And gently, we can put that in the baptismal font. And on the count of three, I want us all to say goodbye, Alleluia. Okay? One, two, three. Three, goodbye. Okay. Is our dowel a little bit too long? Maybe we can put it in at an angle. Okay, then we'll just break it off. It's hard to bury Alleluia. Yeah. yeah, can you take that off at the end? Super. Yay. Change is difficult. Change is challenging. You guys are doing a great job. And you know what? Pastor Jim did not measure that down the So that's, that's on me. Okay. Shall we try it again? On the count of three. Bye, Alleluia. One, two, three. 
three. Very good. And we will find it. And we'll take the alleluia out, put it back on the pulpit where it was. And I think I might even ask Pastor Tom to play the alleluia chorus when we're walking it up the aisle. Thanks, guys. You did a great job. All of you did a great job. Thanks so much. Of course, since we have sung that hymn, now we've told Alleluia goodbye, but it's going through my mind. Alleluia. That's okay. That's all right. These things are just our, our tradition, and they're a way of honoring our tradition, which is fine. You know, uh, the lectionary is a beautiful thing. It doesn't, however, always let us respond to current events very well. And so before I start the sermon based on the gospel, I wanted to just um, share a little bit by way of reflection with you. This has been such a difficult week. The news is so, so difficult to listen to. And we feel rather helpless. At least I should speak for myself. I feel rather helpless. And so I wanted to share with you some thoughts about those feelings of helplessness and some of the small things that we can do. Remember, Mother Teresa says, small things with great love. Right. So today, I'm offering the opportunity, if you would like, as you come up for communion, after you have partaken, if you would like to light one of our votives over against the wall and say a prayer for peace, a prayer for people in the Ukraine, and a prayer for the Russians, many of whom are coerced into doing what they're doing, that would be wonderful. Um, I would invite you during times when there's a lot of tension and concern and worry to reach out to friends. Sit close together <laughs> if the pandemic allows. Be in touch with one another because that's reassuring, I think, when we can sense more of us in the same place, sharing our concerns and sharing our prayers. Practice ways that make for life. You know, the Didache, which is almost as old as the Gospels that we have, the Didache was a manual for life among early, early Christians. And it begins by saying There's a, there are ways that make for life and ways that make for death. And so I'm inviting you to be more intentional in these coming weeks to practice the things that make for life. And that can be really, really simple. Maybe you just set another little begonia out in the garden. Maybe you buy a little peace lily and take it in the house. They don't need much light. Peace lily would be a good thing. Maybe you just brush the dog. These are small things, but they affirm life. Small things with great love. Reaching out towards light, feeding the birds, doing what we can to know that we are part of something far greater than us and far greater than human activity. I would invite you to practice mindfulness. I wrote a little article in the newsletter a couple weeks ago about doing that, simply counting your breaths in and out up to 13. When your attention wanders, bring it back to your counting gently and non-judgmentally. That's a wonderful thing to do after you listen to the news, just sit down and breathe 
and count your breaths up to 13 three times. As I always used to tell my classes, you have to breathe anyway. So this isn't asking too much. Just count in and out and gently bring your thoughts back to your breath when you find your thoughts wandering, which they surely will, because that's how our brains are wired. I don't know, strangely enough, that I would recommend that you initiate a practice of contemplative prayer during this time that is so troublesome. Uh, that may be too challenging, maybe too difficult, and it may be too easy to veer off into some kind of dark stuff if we're not careful. But mindfulness, I could assure you, you will be safe with, and it will allow your body to have a break from the kinds of tension and concern that we are sensing. Lectio Divina, which is finding a passage of scripture and sitting with it, I think I've mentioned this to you before, that people always say to me, well, I know I should read the Bible more. And I oftentimes say, well, actually, I think you should read the Bible less. Pick one or two verses and stay with it. Sit with it. Meditate on it. Lectio Divina. There is Visio Divina, looking at things. I have made copies of Raphael's painting of the Transfiguration. I'm going to come back to that in, in my sermon. I put them on tables out in the parish house for, for coffee. Remember, whatever gets your attention gets you. Remember what Dad always used to say? And so if we can fix our attention on something that is beautiful, like Raphael's painting of the Transfiguration, which you can Google and find, or anything else that is balm to your soul and uplifting to your heart, Fix your mind and your attention on these things. Finally, we can participate in a little show of support. You don't have to do this, but I have a little piece of paper here. If you would like to put your signature there, first name, last name, whatever. I've asked Lois Ann to bring it to the back of the church. We'll have it during coffee hour. I want to send a card to St. Michael's Ukrainian Church here in San Francisco and say, we're with you. Is that okay? So if you would like to sign that, I'll make sure it goes out this week for the Ukrainian church here in San Francisco. Years ago, when we had the Sandy Hook Massacre, that Sunday I was supposed to preach. It was the first Sunday of Advent, and of course it totally, totally blew the sermon and the text out of the water. But uh, the members of St. Paul Lutheran in Oakland sign a card, which we sent to a congregational church there in Connecticut. We didn't know anybody. We just knew there was a congregational church there. So we sent them a card expressing our prayers, our sympathy, and our support. I'd like to do the same today. Finally, practice compassion to others where we can. And practice compassion to yourself. This is a tough one. We Lutherans are not trained in self-compassion. I certainly am not, was not. I'm working on it. It's been about a 15-year process so far. I think it'll be the rest of my life. I had an opportunity to try to practice some self-compassion this morning. I'm going to go ahead and tell this story. I had written to Anthony about uh, having some acolytes, you know, which is wonderful, and, and Neil coming and so forth. And so Anthony emailed back and said, when, when do you think we should show up to get ready to do acolyting? And in my mind... I absolutely had 9.40 because I thought the choir might be done practicing or they might not be. It's all okay. 
And so uh, apparently in my email, instead of asking them to show up at 9.40, I asked them to show up at 8.40. And so I opened my email this morning, and there was this very nice email from Anthony. Wow, Pastor Jim, it's been kind of a busy week, and that's pretty early. I was mortified. I was mortified. Uh, I mean, eight, nine, eight, they're close, they're close, <laughs> but they're an hour different. And so and thank you for your compassion towards me. Instead of writing an email that said, Jim, have you taken leave of your senses? 8.40 in the morning, an hour and 20 minutes before church, which he could, maybe he thought that, but that's, <laughs> he says he did not. That's not what he sent. And so I had to take a couple deep breaths and be grateful for Anthony's compassion to me and say, you know, We've all got a lot on our minds, and it's been this way now for two years. So we need to just practice a little self-compassion. I'm going to tell you one more thing, how I've learned to do this. Sometimes when I do stupid things, I have called myself stupid names. I have called myself names that I would never call anybody else. And then about three months ago, I remembered an episode. This is so not church, but I remembered an episode of the Beverly Hillbillies. Maybe you remember that, too. And you know that Jethro was not the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree in that family. And Jethro had done something really stupid. And Jed said to him, you know, if brains was lard, you couldn't grease too big a skillet. And for some reason, I thought that was hysterically funny, maybe because I was used to a can of grease on the back of the stove and the cast iron skillets. And so I am practicing now when I do something stupid to say to myself, not, Jim, you are so stupid. What were you thinking? Can't you ever focus? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm practicing saying, Jim, if brains was lard, you couldn't grease too big a skillet. And I have to smile and back off. That's what we're talking about, practicing self-compassion. So I hope it's okay that I take this time, because it's a tense and a sad time, to talk about what we can do for ourselves and for each other. Affirming life reaching out to one another, staying in close contact, praying, which of course we do, lighting a candle, sending a letter, practicing compassion, practicing love. May grace and peace be with us and astonishment May we be astounded at the majesty of God, who is the living presence within us and among us. Do you remember way back in January when we pretended as though the miracle at Cana had never happened? And I had a discussion with my friend at Bible study. So we're going to pretend the same thing today. Let's suppose that the first part of today's gospel had never been written down and was unknown to us. And let's suppose that one evening after Bible study, my friend said to me, you know what would be really amazing? It would be really amazing if we had a story about Jesus going up to the mountain to pray, and he takes Peter, James, and John, like he often does, and they fight sleep, just like they do in the Garden of Gethsemane. But this time, when they kind of come to and wake up, they see Jesus but his face is altered and his clothes are dazzling white and it's like they're in another dimension. And then the disciples look up and they see these two guys talking to Jesus and it's Moses and it's Elijah. 
And then, as Moses and Elijah seem to move away, Peter says something really kind of stupid, and then a cloud moves over them, and a voice comes out of the cloud, and as soon as the voice from the cloud has spoken, the cloud disappears, and it's just Jesus standing there, looking like always, and the disciples decide they're not going to tell anyone about what happened. Wouldn't that be an amazing story? If my friend at Bible study had said that, I would probably say to my friend, let's step out in the hall. And when we got there, I might say to my friend, you know, that's probably one of the wildest things you've ever come up with. Jesus' face being altered and his robe shining. Did you miss Bible study two weeks ago when we talked about the messianic secret in Mark? And how would the disciples know it's Moses and Elijah? Did they introduce themselves? Were they wearing name tags? Clouds and voices, are you sure this isn't heresy? It doesn't sound very Lutheran to me. I don't know where you came up with this, but you better make like those disciples and decide not to tell anybody and keep quiet about it, because that type of thing would never happen. Well, once again, I would be wrong, wouldn't I? I guess this story does appear in the Gospels, in three of them, for that matter. And I am convinced that the first part of today's gospel exists, at least in some small, small part, to keep preachers and theologians humble. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Transfiguration is one of the most high festivals of the church year because it reflects much of their understanding of worship and discipleship. After all, in the East, they don't even call sacraments sacraments. They call them mysteries. In the West, particularly in many other Reformation traditions, there's a tendency to be a bit more cognitive. If there's a mystery, we want it explained. One aspect of this text that probably does accord with our experience is that Jesus and the disciples go from a mountaintop transcendent experience to the next day an encounter with disease and despair. Indeed, the ultimate trajectory for this descent from the mountain will lead up to Jerusalem and the Mount of Calvary. It seems to be a familiar pattern, doesn't it? We've spoken about it before. A mountaintop experience followed by what seems to be a really tough, tough time. Even in the book Pilgrim's Progress, and I hope some of you have read that classic, our hero, who is named Christian, begins his pilgrimage to the celestial city, and he's excited, and he cries, life, life, and he's talking about cherubim and seraphim, and shortly thereafter, he falls into the slough of despond, which is a metaphor, this swamp, and Christian is thrashing around and getting the gunk all over himself because he's despairing, going from joy to despair. We'll consider this pattern again next Sunday when our text will be the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So even though the first part of today's text really is shrouded in mystery for us, that doesn't mean we can't give it a closer look. Our text begins with, now about eight days after these sayings. What sayings? Well, Jesus has, for the first time in those sayings, told his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, 
be rejected, be killed, and on the third day be raised. So we are beginning the journey to Jerusalem. And we will come back to this place in Luke after Pentecost. Remember how the Gospel of Luke has Jesus so often in prayer. So Jesus has gone up to the mountain to pray and has taken with him his three closest disciples. And as he was praying, his face became other. That's really what the Greek says. His face became other. The Greek is heteron. And the Greek also says, it's not in our translation, but the Greek says, look it, look it. We would translate it as behold. But behold, look it. There are two men with Jesus, and they're Moses and Elijah. And this has often been thought of as representative of the law and the prophets. But these two men also are individuals whose progress to eternity was extraordinary. Remember Elijah not dying, being carried up into heaven on the fiery chariot, and Moses being buried by God himself, God's self. So Moses and Elijah appear in glory as well. What does that look like? We don't know. And they speak to Jesus of his departure, which in the Greek actually is his exodus. And so the last earthly days on Jesus' life are tied by Luke to Israel's escape from slavery to freedom. And as Moses and Elijah appear to be parting from Jesus, Peter, with his usual impulsiveness, offers to make three tents for the men, perhaps hoping to prolong this event, though Luke acknowledges Peter doesn't really know what he's saying. He's beside himself. And as Peter comments, the cloud surrounds them, and a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen. Thereby, in the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry on the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke reminds us of the voice that was heard from heaven when Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his ministry. In the baptism, the voice said to Jesus, you are my beloved son. In the transfiguration, the voice assures the disciples, this is my son. The demonstrative pronoun, this is my son. And the voice admonishes them and admonishes us, listen to him. Listen to him. And the next day, the next day, having come down from the mountain, Jesus and his disciples have an encounter with suffering, despair, and darkness. An acutely ill, only child, a desperate father, begging for help. As I mentioned to you, go home and Google Raphael's painting. It's the last painting that he did before he died. In fact, when he was in delirium prior to his death, he asked for the painting to be brought to him. He was 37 years old. And it's a stunning painting because it combines not only the transfiguration, but the scene the next day down below, where you can see the crowd in tumult and the father holding his son, who appears to be tonic, I mean stiff, and his son's eyes are pointed in different directions. He's in the midst of a seizure. The crowd is in tumult, and several people in the crowd point to Jesus on the mountaintop. 
It's an incredibly evocative picture. If you want to do a Visio Divina, I would suggest you fix your eyes on that picture. It appears to move. It's so beautiful. That's the day after the mountaintop. So, now what? In light of this mysterious and potentially even disturbing gospel lesson, how then shall we live? Or that most Lutheran of questions, what does this mean? What does this mean? And of course, since this is scripture, as always, there are multiples of multiples meanings. We will look at our inclinations to be like Peter, to hold on to the mountaintop experience, which makes sense, to hang on to the high points, to ignore signs of change on the horizon. Remember, Jesus has tried to explain his eventual sufferings and deaths to the disciples, and he will do so again, but it's never clear that the disciples actually get it. They get it after the fact, after the resurrection. Then they talk about this transfiguration experience. We too often, of course, want to ignore signs of change, stick with what we know and what we think we can be sure of, although that's oftentimes delusional, but we think we can be sure of it and we want to avoid mystery and ambiguity. Richard Rohr, my favorite living Franciscan, says we often want a religious practice that is a protection of the status quo, that protects what we're used to because in protecting the past, we're actually protecting ourselves and avoiding what may be novel and beyond our control. Remember that joke about how many Lutherans it takes to change a light bulb? We do love the old one. We sure do. And so we sometimes want a God we can comprehend, one that we've known, who reflects our culture, our biases, a God who is familiar, not the transfiguration mystery. But St. Augustine told us centuries ago, if you comprehend it, it's not God. That doesn't mean we can't use our minds and be thoughtful. It does mean that we need to use perspective and be humble. So if God is cloaked in mystery as we see evident in the transfiguration, God is present in the unfamiliar, beyond our comfort zone, even while revealed to us through the Incarnation. We're a both-and people, God both hidden and revealed. And if I believe the example of Jesus' life, then God is wherever suffering is, like the crowd that they came down to from the mountain. Wherever people have been excluded, exploited, demeaned, and oppressed. That's where God is. As Cornell West has said and written, justice is what love looks like in public, just like tenderness is what love looks like in private. So today's gospel lesson is a call to prayer on the mountaintop and a call to healing action down on the plain. On Transfiguration Sunday, we leave the mountain and begin our journey towards Lent, towards Jerusalem, toward the Upper Room, toward Calvary, and Holy Saturday, living in the sure and certain hope of resurrection to eternal life, the resurrection that is already 
and not yet. I loved the old ancient gradual verse for this Sunday. Of course, I loved the old one. That old gradual was taken from the first epistle of St. John, where he wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him. And all those who hope thus in God purify themselves as he is pure. Jesus, our bright and morning star. Recall how one theologian wrote, now that we know death doesn't win, there is more to do with our lives than preserve them. May the Holy Spirit console us as we leave the mountaintop. May the living presence accompany us out of the status quo, out of our biases, out of our comfort zones, to be wherever suffering is. May we encounter Jesus in our brothers and sisters, our siblings need. May we encounter Jesus there, there to be astounded at the majesty of God.